The scripture reading tonight is Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 31, and then Genesis 2, verses 7 through 17. The text is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and then Genesis 2, verse 7. That deals with the creation of man. We won't reread that text due to the length, so pay close attention to it as we read it. I'm doing a series now in Edgerton on Genesis 1 through 11. This is the sermon that was brought to them this morning. I'll begin at chapter 1, verse 20. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Now begins the text. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for me. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted, and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So far do we read God's holy and inspired word. 
Again, the text is verses 26 to 31, and then chapter 2, verse 7. We will refer to those verses throughout. Evolutionists and theistic evolutionists have their own view of the origin of man. They say that everything started with the Big Bang that produced non-living matter. And somehow from that non-living matter came forth the first living organism, which they say was a single-celled creature, And that single-celled organism lived around three and a half billion years ago, they say. And from that single-celled organism eventually developed fish. And from those fish eventually developed reptiles. And from reptiles eventually developed dinosaurs and the first mammal. And then there was this mammal from which came eventually developed apes and humans. And that all took place over the course of hundreds of millions of years, according to the evolutionist. There are also those called theistic evolutionists, and theistic evolutionists claim to hold to Scripture, and they hold to evolution. They also say that man developed from a creature. Man developed from an an ape-like animal over the course of millions of years. But you might wonder what a theistic evolutionist then says about Genesis 1 and 2. Well, some theistic evolutionists will say that Adam and Eve, they were not actually the first human couple, but they were human beings around for two million years before they were around. But the special thing about Adam and Eve is they were separated out by God to dwell in friendship with him. They were the first ones of the human race to be separated out for friendship with God. Other theistic evolutionists say that Adam and Eve did not actually exist. And there never was this paradise where there was no sin, no death. Genesis 1 through 11 does not give us literal history. The only point it's making is that God oversaw the making of all things. He oversaw this evolutionary process that's led to what we see today around us in the world. Now today... The truth about man's origin will be explained and defended. And that's very important that the truth be explained and defended in regard to man's origin. It's very important because the world today bombards us with our evolutionary viewpoint. It's on TV. It's on the Internet. It's in textbooks, museums. And it's not just the world that bombards us with that view, but even the church world today, more and more, are theistic evolutionists. Even in Reformed churches, even in Christian colleges. So our children and grandchildren, they're exposed to these teachings that can be so deceptive because theistic evolutionists will point to Scripture here and point to Scripture there and act like they hold to it and value it, when in reality they don't. Their views on man's origin are an attack on Scripture And their views on man's origin are even an attack on the truth of salvation. Corrupting the truth about Adam and his creation leads to a corruption of the truth about the human race and sin and guilt. When one does not see the truth about Adam... He does not see the truth about his sin in Adam. He doesn't see the truth about the pollution that he has, his inherited pollution. 
He doesn't see the truth about his great need for Jesus Christ. It's all connected. So it's important that the truth regarding man's origin be explained and defended to us. And Scripture very clearly gives us the truth about man's origin. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created man on the sixth day of the creation week. And Genesis chapter 2 tells us that God named that first man Adam. According to Genesis 1, also, man did not develop from animals, but God made man to be a distinct creature from the animals. Genesis 1 is so clear about that. Verses 20 through 25 speak about God's creation of the animals. Then, there's a significant pause before we read of the creation of man in verse 26. Verse 26 tells us that God spoke within himself, indicating that he was going to create something that was unique. We read, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on. Clearly, God was going to make something unique. He spoke within himself before he made him. And then in verse 27, God even uses the word create regarding man. So God created man. That word create in the original language means to make new. God was making a new creature here. It wasn't like man was developing from an animal that God had earlier created. Now, what Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us also is real history. Theistic evolutionists will often say this is not literal history, but it is according to the rest of Scripture. According to Matthew 19, Jesus regarded Genesis 1 and 2 as real history when he spoke about the first marriage, referring to Adam and Eve's marriage. Paul He speaks of Adam and Eve as real people in 1 Timothy 2, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, and Romans 5, verse 12. It's real history, according to the rest of Scripture. So today we will consider what Genesis 1 and 2 says about God's creation of man, specifically the unique nature that God gave man, the image of God that that. God made man to bear, and also the the unique position that God gave to man over the creation. And and as we as we look at those things, we will again we will see tonight God's great power. See more and more that theistic evolution is false, and this consideration too of God's creation of man in His own image, it will lead us to consider the truth also of. God's saving work of us is restoring us to God's image by Jesus Christ. So let's consider the text today under the theme, God's creation of man. God's creation of man. First, the unique nature given. Second, the image of God endowed. And third, the royal duty conveyed. First, the unique nature given. God gave man a unique nature, and that's especially shown in Genesis 2, verse 7. There we read that God formed man from the dust of the ground, and that gave man a nature that had a unique physical side. God formed man from the dust of the ground, giving his nature a unique physical side. Genesis 2, verse 7, I'll read that. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. That's different than what God did when he created the animals. In verses 20 through 25, we read that when God created the animals, he called them forth out of the earth. 
Now in Genesis 2, verse 7, we read about God's creation of man, that he formed man from the dust of the ground. That's different. That's unique. Unique from the animals. The dust of the ground that's spoken of there is the clay or the dirt of the earth. And that God formed man from that dust of the ground means that he fashioned man from it. The word formed there in the original language, it has the idea of a potter forming or shaping clay. Kids, you can think of Play-Doh. You form or shape Play-Doh into a, a certain shape that you want it to be in. Well, God, he formed and shaped man from the dust of the ground. Man was formed from the dust of the ground, and that's why he's called man. The very name man in Hebrew, it is, it's literally Adam. And that word man or Adam, it means from the earth or from the clay. By forming man from the dust of the earth, God gave man's nature a unique physical side. Man was formed from the dust of the earth, and thus he's something physical that you can touch. He's something physical that lives on the earth. We are familiar with the phrase from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47a, which says, Man is of the earth earthy. Man lives an earthly life. He needs the earth for food. Plants grow from the ground. We need that. Man sees earthly things with his earthly eyes. He hears earthly sounds with his earthly ears. He tastes, he tastes, he smells, he touches earthly objects. Man is earthly. And that man has a physical or earthly side explains a couple of things about our existence. First, it explains why God gives to us an earthly Bible. And why in that Bible, he explains heavenly things to us using earthly stories. Think of parables. Also, that we are physical and earthly explains why we must be changed in order to enter into heaven. Our, we are of the earth earthy and we are not fit for heavenly life with God. We have to be made heavenly. Man was formed from the earth, and he was made or formed physically unique. Man's form is different than the animals. God formed man so that he's upright with an intelligent face and finely shaped hands that help him for his, for his work. God made man a unique physical creature. And God's formation of man from the dust of the ground shows that theistic evolution is wrong, and evolution cannot be fit with Scripture, as theistic evolutionists try to do. Theistic evolutionists teach that man came from animals, developed from animals. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God's word says that God formed man from the dust of the ground, not from an animal. He formed man from the dust of the ground. So if, if you do, if you are talking with a theistic evolutionist, speak to them in love, but ask them the question, why would God tell us in his word that he formed man from the dust of the ground if man actually developed from animals as you say he did? Why would God do that? Why would he say what he says in Genesis 2, verse 7? The evolutionary viewpoint cannot be fit with Scripture. God formed man from the dust of the ground, giving him that unique physical side. But also verse 7 teaches that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life giving to him a unique spiritual side to his nature. Read Genesis, I'll read Genesis 2, verse 7 again. 
And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's different than what God did with the animals. All we read about the animals is that God called them forth from the dust of the earth. God called them forth from the earth. We never read that God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. That's something unique to man. What happened with man is that at the same time God formed him from the dust of the ground, at the same time God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that he became a living soul. And that he became a living soul means that he became a living being. He became a living being that had a body and a soul. God powerfully made him alive. Well, when God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, God gave man's nature a unique spiritual side that's, that's very different than the animal's. Animals have a, have a physical body and, in a sense, have a soul. The animals have their life, we read in Scripture, they have their life or soul in their blood. That's found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. An animal is a, a living soul, according to Genesis chapter 1, which calls them a living creature, but that word in the original language is soul. So there's a sense in which an animal has a soul. But again, that soul is in their blood. And when their blood is spilled, that's the, and they die, that's the end of their existence. But according to Scripture, an animal is a living soul that has understanding even to a degree. We read, for instance, in Scripture of certain animals having wisdom like an ant. And they have foresight. Certain animals are especially faithful they have desires, memory. However, animals did not have God breathe into their nostrils the breath of life. And man did. And that's especially what makes man a different creature. That's especially what makes man a spiritual creature that has morality. He has a moral nature. Animals are only earthly beings without a spiritual side. They are not moral creatures. They cannot stand in conscious relationship to God. They do not know God. They do not... They don't love Him or hate Him. God's creation of man was different. By the inbreathing of God's Spirit... Man was given a spiritual side to his nature so that man does have a moral nature. He is a moral being. He can't, he was made to be one who stood in conscious relationship with God. He can know God, speak to him, love him. Man became capable of standing in a conscious relationship of friendship with God when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So God's creation of man is really quite a wonder when you think about it. And it shows forth God's great attributes. It shows forth his great power, for instance. You think, ask, can, can a scientist, the, the smartest scientist in the world, can he take the dust of the earth and from that dust form a living man? Of course not. And then, then go even higher. Can, can that scientist form a man who stands in conscious relationship to God and loves Him and serves God and knows God and speaks to God? Can a scientist make a creature like that? Of course not. What that shows is the great power of God. He made a, a man in a day. He made a man in a moment. That's his power. And what wisdom and knowledge God showed also in this making of man. That God is wise means that he has the ability 
to make all things work for his glory. That's what he does in his wisdom. And he, he made this man to stand in conscious relationship with him and to praise him and to love him and serve him. It's God's wisdom. And as you think upon God's creation of man tonight, thank God. He didn't need man for anything. But he breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life so that man might stand in relationship with him and friendship with him and and enjoy that friendship with him. He breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life so that we might be worshiping him today, right here. Praise God and thank him. And God's breathing of, into man's nostrils the breath of life shows that theistic evolution is, is so wrong and that, again, it, evolution cannot be fit with Scripture. Man did not develop from the animals according to Scripture. No, God made man distinct from those animals, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. So God made man to have a unique nature. In the second place tonight, know that God made man in his image. His own image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, teach that. We read in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. An image is something that looks like something else. And you notice that in verse 26, the word likeness comes after the word image. And likeness really is explaining the word image there. An image is something that looks like something else. So you might see a child that looks a lot like their father and you say, that child is a spitting image of his dad. And that means that child looks just like his dad. Well, God made man in such a way that man looked like him. What does that exactly mean, though? That God made man in his own image so man looked like him. Well, first, that God made man in his own image means that God made man capable of looking like him. God made man capable of looking like him in a spiritual, creaturely way. See, we cannot be as glorious as God is. He's God. And we cannot look like God physically because God's a spirit. That God made man capable of looking like him, by that we mean that God made man capable of looking like him in a spiritual, creaturely way. And God made man capable of looking like him in a spiritual, creaturely way by making him a rational, moral creature. God is a rational, moral God. He's a God who thinks. He's a God who is moral. He decided what's right and what's wrong. He knows right and wrong. God made man a rational, moral creature who can think, understand, remember, and love God or hate God. God made man a thinking, moral being so that man might be one who's capable of living in friendship with him. He made man a rational, moral being so that man might live as his friend knowing him consciously, serving him consciously. Praise God that God made man capable of bearing his image. But God not only made man capable of bearing his image, God made man so that he actually did bear that image. 
God made man so that man did like look like him spiritually, having true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Those three elements of the image of God, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, we get those three elements from the New Testament, specifically from Ephesians 4, verse 24, and Colossians 3, verse 10. Those New Testament verses... They speak of being renewed in God's image. Understand that when those passages speaking, speak of being renewed in God's image, they're showing then what man originally looked like. They're showing that man originally had knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Ephesians 4 verses 23 and 24 says, And that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That implies that God made man to have true righteousness. Righteousness is harmony with God's law. One who is doing something that's righteous, he is loving God. And that's what Adam did in the garden. Adam was made as one who loved God. He had true righteousness. He had true holiness, according to Ephesians 4, verse 24. And that he had holiness means that he was devoted to God. Devoted to the worship of God and all that he did. And Adam also had true knowledge. Colossians 3, verse 10 gives to us that element of the image of God. And the word knowledge there... It means, it refers to experiential knowledge. The idea is that Adam knew God. He knew God as a man knows his friend. Adam was made in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So God's creation of man was clearly good, as Genesis 1 verse 31 says. That it was good means it was excellent. That man was good means that he fit the purpose for which God made him, and that is the glory of God's name. God's creation of man was good. And that God created man after his own image, it show, so clearly again shows that evolution is false. An animal cannot develop into a creature that bears God's image. Some theistic evolutionists will say, yes, it could. An animal over time by God's power, it could develop into a creature that bears the image of God. Some theistic evolutionists will say that. But the response is, Scripture doesn't teach that that's how it happened. God's Word teaches that God made man distinct from the animals. God did not make man in the image of God. It never says that. God, The Word says that God made man in his own image. In addition, note that this is how man started. Some theistic evolutionists will say that the human race began long before Adam. And that the first humans of the human race, they were uncivilized savages running around. And it, it, they, they were naked. They didn't even... They didn't know much at all. And they struggled upward and, and developed slowly. Well, God's Word teaches that God created Adam in his own image. True knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He had that right away. Immediately, he knew God as his creator and consciously served him. Consciously looked out at that creation and saw God's power and saw God's wisdom and praised him for it. That's what the Word teaches. And that, again, reminds us of God's power and his wisdom and his knowledge in making man. What creation, what a work of God to create something like man. God made man in his own image. And thus man was God's friend. That's the next step here. God made man in his own image. That's so important. Because being made in God's image, Adam was God's friend. 
Adam dwelled in a covenant relationship with God according to Scripture. Consider Hosea 6, verse 7. There God is speaking through the prophet Hosea to the sinful people. And he says, They, like men, have transgressed the covenant. And that word men in Hosea 6, verse 7, it's translated men in the King James Version. But the word there literally is Adam. And that's the idea of the word there. They, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. The implication of that verse is that Adam did dwell in a covenant relationship of friendship with God. Genesis 1 through 3 show that Adam dwelled in that covenant friendship with God. God spoke to him. Genesis 1 verses 28 and 29 say that, show that God gave Adam commands. God told Adam to rule the creation. Verse 29, God showed Adam what to eat. Chapter 2, verse 16, God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but to eat of the tree of life. God spoke to Adam, and Adam heard, and he understood God's word. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 indicates that God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam spoke with God. He was God's friend. Man was God's friend as one who bore God's image. Man was not God's friend because of some agreement that was made between man and God. Many describe Adam's covenant relationship with God. Many describe that covenant as a covenant of works. You'll read that. You read many books about the covenant. You'll read about the covenant of works. By that term, covenant of works, most mean that the covenant relation between God and Adam was an agreement. It was a contract. And, and the agreement was this. If you, Adam, perfectly obey, you continue to obey, you will gain a higher level of life with me, God. You'll gain a higher level of life with me, and that's heavenly life. Adam already had life with God. The idea is if he continued to obey, he would really gain or earn a higher level of life with God, heavenly life. Now, we reject the covenant of works, and we reject the covenant of works, first of all, because Scripture never speaks of that agreement between Adam and God. It never speaks of any such contract ever happening. God did give Adam commandments about the trees, but he never spoke of any agreement with Adam in which Adam would earn some higher form of life with God by obeying. Now, walking in obedience... Adam would continue, he would have continued to enjoy life with God in paradise. But that's different than living with God in heaven. That's not the same as eternal life with God in heaven. Now also we not deny the covenant of works because Jesus says in Luke chapter 7 verse 10 that even if one perfectly obeys God, He's only done what's required of him. So he hasn't earned anything. Jesus teaches that. And last, we object to the covenant of works. Because scripture teaches that eternal life in heaven is something that can only be gained through Christ, who alone can make earthly man fit for heavenly life. So we reject that idea of the covenant of works, but now see the truth. The relationship of friendship between God and Adam, and it didn't exist because of some contract, but man was God's covenant friend as one who was made in God's image. Man was God's covenant friend as one who was made in God's image. God is triune, and each person of the Trinity seeks the glory of God. That's the goal, the glory of God. 
that God is a triune God is even shown clearly in the pronouns in Genesis 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our image. Each person of the Trinity knows the others as one will, has really one ultimate purpose, the glory of God's name. Now, man was made to be like God in a spiritual, creaturely way. So we saw before he was given experiential knowledge of God and holiness and righteousness. And what that shows to us is that man was made as one who had the same goal as God. And that's the glory of God's name. So God and man, they were unified with that goal, God's glory. Man sought God's glory in all that he did. Man and God are perfectly united, friends. And remember, too, man was made in, to have true knowledge of God. Being made in his image, he had true knowledge, that experiential knowledge of God. He knew God as his friend. So as one who was made in God's image, man was friends with God. And what a wonderful friendship it was. Immediately, Adam enjoyed that wonderful friendship. Immediately, at, at the very first moment he awoke, he enjoyed that friendship. Just imagine that moment. In a, in, a, in a flash, the Lord turned on the light of Adam's consciousness so that he opened his eyes and he looked. Looked at that creation around him, beautiful green plants, saw the, the birds, the butterflies, saw God's wisdom and his power shining forth in, in those creatures and those things God made. He immediately knew God, knew God's power. You can imagine him lying, really getting on his hands and on his knees, bowing before the great God, bowing on that dust of the earth from which he's made and crying out, my God, how great thou art. Adam saw all that creation unspoiled by sin and the curse. What a sight. Adam lived with God there right away as his covenant friend. He continued to live as God's covenant friend there for a time until he sinned. Adam had true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And that friendship he had with God in the garden was unhindered by sin. We don't even know what that would be like. For we are sinners. But Adam always tasted the blessedness of God's favor. God spoke to him and he always perfectly understood, always perfectly obeyed, always saw the great power and glory of God shining in the creation and always gave him glory. What a life that was. And that brings us now to the, the truth of our salvation because we know what happened. Adam sinned, lost the image of God. We lost the image of God. The amazing truth is that God has recreated us in his own image, and he has made us his friends. He's restored us to that friendship. That's the wonderful truth of our salvation. Praise God for it as you hear of it. We sinned in Adam, we lost that image of God. Man was created very good and in God's image, but he was made in such a way that he could fall into sin and he could pervert that image into its total opposite. Adam chose to sin. He ate of the forbidden tree. When Adam sinned, he did lose the image of God. In light of Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, we know that when he sinned, he died. And that means that he died spiritually. He was separated from God and ruled by sin. He no longer had the image of God, true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now, he still had the capacity to bear that image. When he sinned, he didn't turn into an animal. He was still a rational, moral creature. He still had the capacity to bear the image, but as one who had sinned, he no longer bore that image. No longer had true righteousness and holiness. Instead, he now showed forth the image of the devil. Now, when Adam sinned, we know that all sinned. 
When Adam sinned, I sinned, and you sinned, according to Romans 5, verse 12. And we all lost the image of God. Jesus says in John 8, verse 44, about man as he naturally is, Jesus says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. Think of that. Ye are of your father the devil. That's natural man. So man, he's capable of bearing the image of God, but natural man no longer does bear it. Instead of knowing the truth about God, having that true knowledge, and enjoying that friendship with God, natural man believes and holds to the lie. And instead of living in righteousness, heartily loving God, natural man only loves himself and seeks the good of mankind in general. And instead of living in holiness and being devoted to God, natural man is only devoted to self, and again, maybe the greater good of mankind but not the glory of God. That brings us to the truth of our salvation. Think of this. God in His great goodness, He sent His only begotten Son to pay for all the sins of His people. He sent His only begotten Son to die for Adam and to die for us believers. Amazing. He sent Christ to suffer and die for my sins, my sin in Adam, my sins I committed this morning, my sins I've committed even when I've been here, those sins for which I deserve hell. God sent Christ to pay for them all. And he did. That fall, no accident then. No accident at all. God planned the fall. He planned the fall so that he might show forth the wonder of his grace. In Christ. Plan that fall so that we tonight might even stand in awe of who He is as the one who sent Christ to save us from our sins. By paying for our sins, Jesus Christ gained the right to recreate His people in God's image. And that's what He does. Apart from that work at the cross, where He paid for all the sins of His people, Jesus would have no right to live and work in his people. Apart from Christ's work at the cross, we'd all be guilty sinners before God. And guilty sinners must die. They must remain dead in their sins. They cannot have Christ working in them. They must be dead. Christ went to that cross. He paid for the sins of God's people so that those sins are gone from God's sight. And based on his work at the cross, Jesus does have the right to live and to work in us. And that's exactly what he does by his spirit. And he does and has recreated us in God's image. And he renews us in that image. It's wonderful. It's the truth of our salvation. Based on what Christ would do, God recreated his people in the Old Testament in his image. And based on what Christ has done, He recreates us in his image. He's given to us knowledge so that we reject the lie. We know the truth. We know God as our friend. We know God even as we look out at the creation and see his power and wisdom there. We have that righteousness. God is working us to love him. We have holiness so that we're devoted to God and we want to be here tonight worshiping him. It's God's work recreating us in his image. And based on Christ's work, God has renewed us in his image, and we are his friends. We enjoy communion with God as we seek his glory. We enjoy communion with God as we worship him tonight. He speaks to us in love about what his son has done, what his son is doing by the Spirit. And we speak back to him in prayer and song, seeking his praise. We know him. We've been given that true knowledge. We're his friends. We look out at the creation, even on our way home tonight, see that sunset. We lay before God, as it were, and we cry out, My God, how great thou art. What a friendship it is. Praise God for it. And one day, we will enjoy perfect friendship with God in heaven based on Christ's work at Calvary. You see, now we don't perfectly bear God's image as those who each have a sinful nature. 
now we don't enjoy perfect friendship with God, we still sin. But Christ is coming again. He's coming again. He who is heavenly, he will raise our bodies and make us fit for life in the new heavens and new earth with our God. And there we will perfectly bear God's image. And there we will enjoy perfect friendship with God. There we will perfectly seek his glory all the time. That's our hope. That's our future. We'll go there based on Christ's work. Praise him. Now in the last place tonight, God created man in his image. We've seen that. And God then gave man a royal duty. God called man to rule the creation to his glory. Seeking his praise. Genesis 1 verse 28 gives us that royal duty. We read there, God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That man was to have dominion over the creation means that he was to rule it. And God gave him especially three duties as king of the creation. Verse 28 gives us those three duties. First, man was to have children and fill the earth. Second, man was to subdue the earth. And that means that he must discover what's in the earth and its resources. And then use those resources to help him. Third, man must have dominion or rule over the creatures of the earth, caring for them. That's verse 28. So man was to rule the creation, but understand this, he was to rule the creation in the service of God, the king. Man was king, but he was a representative of God, the king. Man was God's representative as one who was made in God's image. And being made by God God in God's own image, man then was to rule the creation, seeking the glory of God in all of his work. So we've seen before, man was to subdue the earth, use all those resources to help. Well, man was ultimately to use those resources to help him glorify God. That man was to subdue the earth especially means that he was to press all the things of the earth into the service of God. That's his duty. For instance, he was to use the fruit trees for eating, according to verse 29 of chapter 1. He was to use those fruit trees for eating, but ultimately use that energy to glorify God. He was to use all the resources from the earth Help him praise God. That was the purpose. That was his, to be his goal. He was to subdue the earth and he was to have children that filled the earth so that throughout the earth man was using the resources that praise the Lord. He was to care for all the creatures with the goal that those creatures who showed forth God's power and wisdom might continue to show forth that power and wisdom. In his rule... Man was to glorify God, really in gratitude for being made. For being made this creature that had the image of God and was, was even brought into friendship with God. He used to do this in gratitude to God. And as he walked in this way, exercising rule over the creation of the glory of God, as he walked in that way, he would be living in friendship with God and enjoying that friendship. As he used the resources in God's service, he'd be thinking about God and about God's power and about God's goodness as the creator of all these things, and he'd be walking and living with God as his friend. That was man's calling. Now, as those who have recreated, we, as those who have recreated in God's image and made God's friends, we must press all things into the service of God in gratitude to him for that salvation. Man fell. We know that man fell and natural man. He does the opposite of doing he's the opposite of that. Natural man now presses all the earth's resources into the service of self. And seeks to use those things to help him promote self and the good of mankind, but not the glory of God. 
In a sense, man still has dominion in the earth. He does. And in a sense, he still does subdue it. You think about the inventions, the television, the phone, the computer, social media. He presses all these things of the earth. He uses them. How does he use them? To promote self. Really, he uses them in the service of sin. That rebellion against God and seeking of man's glory is leading to the reign of Antichrist. Because what man does today with all these resources, that's what Antichrist wants him to, that's what he will want him to do. That's what Antichrist will do. Antichrist will use all the earth's resources to serve himself and to exalt mankind. That kingdom more than any other will stand against God will exalt man. But as we think upon how man uses all these resources to promote self, you just have to think about social media and what man does with that, what the athletes, the celebrities do with it. It's all about me, promoting me, getting my brand out. That's exactly how we would be if left to self. That's how we would use the earth's tools and resources. No better than them. By nature. But in his grace, in his grace, God sent Jesus Christ. And he has changed us, his people. God sent Christ, who was God's perfect friend servant while he was on this earth. He pressed all that was around him, always into the service of God, always seeking his glory. And he perfectly obeyed God and glorified him all the way to the cross. Where he paid for all our sins. And that same Christ was exalted. And he now lives in us by his spirit. And we are no longer enslaved to rebellion against the king. Christ empowers us to press earth's resources to the service of God. To use them as helps to us in glorifying him. Christ empowers us and he empowers us through the word. He calls us tonight to use these Use the earth's resources to glorify him. He calls us to exercise lordship in the creation in that way. Think of money tonight. Think of how we use our money and how we use the, the resources. Think of how we use the tools, invention, like the phone, the internet, social media, computer. How, how are we using those things? Instead of using those things to glorify and promote self, use them always to glorify God. Use them to point people to God. Use the internet, social media to do that. That more and more may know him, praise him. This great God who's been so good to us. Therefore, the God, God's creation, desiring that we may continue to see God's wisdom and power and glory shining forth from these creatures around us. Care for the creation. May Christ empower us through the word we've heard tonight to do that. And as we walk in that way, we will enjoy God's friendship. As we walk in that way in gratitude by his power. And one day, keep in mind this, one day in the new creation, we will perfectly bear God's image, perfectly enjoy his friendship. We will always be pressing all things in that new creation into the service of God. Think about how wonderful that day will be. Think about seeing all that, all that around us always shining forth the glory and power of God, all of it unspoiled by sin and the curse. That's our future. Thank God for making man and tonight. Praise him for that. Praise God for recreating us in his image and making us his friends. And praise God as you dwell upon that hope we have for the new heavens and earth. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we bow before thee, thanking thee and praising thee for thy creation of man. And thanking thee and praising thee for the salvation thou hast given to us in Jesus Christ recreating us in thy image so that we know thee.
And Lord, strengthen us to use the earth's resources to help us to praise thee and glorify thy name, thou art worthy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.